Hello and welcome to Navarra FM, brought to you by Navarra Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest radio station in its dogged insistence that not every inch of our airwaves should be dominated by infantile pap and which treats its listeners as, well, adults. You don't get that everywhere. I am James Butler. And before we jump into today's show, I just want to point listeners' attention to what's been going on in India. In Delhi, there have been massive and violent riots as Hindu nationalists have sought to effectively conduct what I think can only be called a pogrom of Muslim residents, including the desecration of mosques and destruction of Muslim-owned businesses. This isn't an isolated occurrence, uh, but a feature of the empowerment of the far right under Narendra Modi, whose party of course, deep, deeply anti-Muslim, and who, as chief minister in Gujarat, presided over a pogrom in 2002. It's not just Modi, of course. His party has many, many people in it who are enthused about this kind of violence and division. Uh, and you can look up north to Uttar Pradesh, where the BJP chief minister has made all sorts of, frankly, chilling uh, statements during recent protests against the xenophobic citizenship amendment law in Delhi itself. Both police and the RSS, which is uh, the uniformed band of Hindu nationalists have been involved in violence and intimidation at the capital's secular university. You can see some of that online. Elements of the judiciary which have spoken out have been transferred or moved, including uh, yesterday one Justice Murlida, who uh, reproved Delhi police for their total lack of action in quelling violence in the city. One BJP spokesman said on TV last night, uh, oh, Hindu, arise from slumber, otherwise be ready to get chopped. I'm spending some time on this because I think this is a very serious situation. Much of the reporting of it in the English language press underestimates its seriousness. And I must say, if this is what they're doing in broad view of reporting in Delhi, where the media still operate, it doesn't take much to wonder what they're doing in Kashmir, where there is still a reporting ban. There are 42 dead in Delhi uh, at last count. That number is expected to rise. We'll bring you more work in depth on India in the coming few weeks. But in the meantime, please make some noise online on your social media. And please, if you can, try to lobby your MP, if possible, to make some noise about this and bring some pressure to bear wherever they can. Unless, of course, your MP is one of that craven band, Labour, as well as Tory, who have been prepared to write out the red carpet for the Butcher of Gujarat. In which case, I don't know, you should probably have a go at them, to be honest. Um, anyway... Yes, more on that to come, but I thought I'd mention it at the top of the show because I probably couldn't live with myself if I didn't. And with that lead-heavy note, uh, we move on to the rest of the show. I'm joined today by Owen Hathley, who, as well as a deluge of books on cities and buildings, uh, is also culture <coughs> editor at the excellent Tribune magazine. And those two things, the places we live and the things that we do, uh, will be what we're talking about today. It's a pleasure to have you here, Owen. Pleasure is all mine. Uh, one of the many reasons I wanted to get you on the show today was because I have a sense of something that's been missing in a lot of the conversations that we've had uh, on this show over the years about housing in particular, uh, which is that we tend to talk about housing in terms of either political choices made by central or local government or the political economy of house building, right? So we talk about it in these kind of politically aggregated terms and we say less about the kind of places in which people live and, and how they live in them. So I want, to, I want to sort of start there, which is obviously an area of your, your expertise, and, and ask, you know, which is quite a simple question, you know, does architecture matter to the left and should it? Um, absolutely it does. And I think there's also a lot of places where the political economy of, 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 of building an architecture are, are, are basically inextricable. I mean, the most obvious thing with this um, at the moment is obviously Grenfell Tower, where um, you can't really understand what's happened unless you understand how architecture works and how it's funded and how it's contracted and procured. And you can't particularly um, understand the kind of relationship of forces in somewhere like Kensington and Chelsea and how it manages the housing without understanding the role of architecture within that. So I think that, 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 that sort of separating them is very, very difficult. And in many ways, one of the reasons why architecture is interesting is because it's one of the places where separating it as an art form from political economy is extraordinarily difficult. Um, but certainly I find a kind of... Uh, a certain sort of lack of interest in it, not necessarily on the left in general, but among... I suppose the sort of social democratic left, um, sort of weirdly one thing I share of anarchists is a sort of a, a sort of lack of interest in what it's actually like experientially. Um, I always think of the housing cooperative in New Cross, which you will know with its great big mural of um, Ronald Reagan. And I think either Chernenko or Andropov, definitely one of the short stay um, Soviet leaders kind of, you know, firing missiles at each other. And it's a row of 
typical 1980s Barrett homes, mm. which from the start was planned as a radical cooperative. And the idea that when they when they were building it, that they could have built something that was spatially, architecturally, aesthetically radical seemed to be absolutely beyond them. And I think that, that that's the thing that they that, that, that they share with um, the kind of Labour centre and right. I often think of um, the kind of white was it white paper or it was a sort of a, pa- a sort of preliminary paper on housing that that um, that Labour's then shadow housing minister put out yeah. about two years ago, which. I mean, it wasn't very, very good in terms of um, the actual content. But one of the things that really struck me was that the picture at the top was of a row of sort of developers, sort of cottages, which was so kind of poorly designed that they had actually appeared in the in the blog Bad British Architecture as an example of bad British architecture. And, you know, given the very, very long history of sort of intersections between architecture and socialism in Britain, it's really poor that that's where we'd mm. ended up. But I mean, the, 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 yeah, I mean, because the the way that this sort of happens or, or is talked about in in kind of high politics, like Westminster politics, you know, it's it's usually saying you know people should have good homes, mm. right? And and there's a lot of Mm-mm. stuff going on in good there, which is usually kind of very much underexamined. So I guess the question there for me is like, you know, you're going to approach this you know, in one of a few ways because so one there's like there's a very strong reactionary lobby in Britain around housing, right? So there's this organisation, Create Streets, which is like <laughs> oh, God. Uh, extremely, uh, has a kind of very uh, particular vision of what it, what it wants. From... Very close linked to the Conservative Party. Yes. Um, uh, the, the late and unlamented Roger Scruton, for instance, is, has also, you know, was, was, was once appointed for, for this stuff uh, by the Conservative government before he bounced out of his position. Quite rightly, but but so because because it does seem to me there's a, a sort of unspoken assumption in central government that what people basically want is a nice Victorian or Edwardian house yep. with a big garden yep. uh, and is sort of centred around uh, you know the family unit and uh, that's what people should be building and all of these schemes for high rises or anything involving concrete this is just sort of <laughs> lofty left wing nonsense which yeah. you know, people like you want to impose on the good burgers of Britain. (laughs) It's true that I do want to forcibly take everyone out of their nice houses and put them into concrete bunkers. This is what I've (laughs) devoted my life to, and I'm very proud of it. Um, Well, there's there's several things going on here. I think one of which is, um, if you look at, you know, say the 1960s when a lot of the stuff was built, you would usually have... um, there were a lot of surveys of residents. What did residents actually want? And surprise, surprise, most people wanted a house. You had about 10% of that that wanted tower blocks. And this is usually kind of brought up as a kind of like, <laughs> you know, these people were forced into tower blocks. It was like less than 10% of the housing built at that point was tower blocks. Um, you know, it, it's based on a kind of very, very skewed idea of what's actually built and what modern architecture actually is, which I think is... Um, at the root of a lot of that, they're sort of finding the most kind of inflammatory examples of a thing, and then kind of going, "Ah, well, this is this this is what it is." Um, but in terms of uh, there's something just enormously facile and deliberately and kind of studiedly facile about what something like Create Streets do, which is they show people pictures of buildings. Um, you know, what they usually do is here's a picture of a house in Bath and here's a picture of a concrete tower block. Which would you rather live in? Surprise, surprise, everyone says the house in Bath, apart from, you know, 1% of, of, of people like, like me. Um, but I think the, 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 the thing with that, of course, is that architecture is a three-dimensional art form. Um, you can't actually understand architecture by looking at it as if it's a a picture it is not a picture and you're dealing with something that that is spatial and physical and three-dimensional um and of course within that you know people don't want something what they don't want to live in something by and large that looks like a factory or a bunker or a prison and so forth and a lot of the opposition to um modern architecture very early on did come from those particular associations like it did with kind of philanthropic architecture of the 19th century which weirdly creates streets really love mm. like kind of peabody trust stuff you know the the resemblance of that stuff to prisons and workhouses was not lost on people um but then this was then followed by you know about 90 years of municipal architecture which was usually 
of a far superior quality and also of a spatial quality and a, and a particular use of kind of public spaces that is kind of completely ignored in that sort of discourse. And that is also worth mentioning that Create Streets are basically part of Policy Exchange, who are a conservative think tank. And seeing people on the left kind of uncritically kind of like, you know, and struggles over the Mount Pleasant development or whatever, kind of like going, oh, well, Create Streets have done this wonderful thing of kind of like, they are playing you. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, there is, the, I guess, this question which crops up, because you, you alluded to it, that there is a kind of quite a strong sort of history of interaction and uh, overlap between uh, architects and socialists, right? So yep. there's, a, there's a long history, even in Britain. Yep. Right, which you know, I you know, usually you you know, I, I I sort of instinctively reach for the continent on this stuff, but but you know, you're quite right that there is that that history in Britain. It does seem, however, that it's uh, you know a little hidden from like contemporary discourse. So if we, if we were to look back over the course of the 20th century in Britain, where should we be looking for places that? Uh, that those two things have productively crossed over. Over the 20th century in Britain, yeah. specifically. Um, well, what I'm currently trying to do is find a long quote um, on an e-reader from William Morris and his essay, The Housing of the Poor, from 1884. Mm -hmm. So Morris is quite often kind of brought up as the sort of foundation of a particular sort of British way of looking at um, uh, housing and place and and, and building and, and and aesthetics, and that's usually translated into you know English socialists like English people in general want to live in nice little cottages. And here is Morris in 1884. It might be advisable granting the existence of huge towns for the present that the houses for workers should be built in tall blocks in what might be called vertical streets, but that need not prevent ample room in each lodging so as to include such comforts of space and privacy as every moderately living middle-class family considers itself entitled to. Also, it must not present the lodgings having their due share of pure, pure air and sunlight necessaries of life that the builders of the, of the above-mentioned Bastilles do not seem to have thought of at all. And he sort of continues sort of pointing out, you know, that this could have such obvious conveniences, common laundries and kitchens, um, top stories as roof gardens, um, and, you know, that the, the houses will be in no degree bare or prison-like, and it goes on to sort of slag off philanthropic housing of the time. Um, pretty much everything he's asking for here is what you would get in a sort of decent uh, large-scale 1950s or 1960s development. It wouldn't look much like William Morris. It wouldn't have the wallpaper unless it's you know doing it in your own in your own flat. Um, it wouldn't have a big steep pitched roof, and it wouldn't look particularly medieval. But it's basically what he's asking for there. And all of the things that he's listing there are things that are spatial, and they're things that are um, about a way, the way a particular sort of community would live in something. So he's kind of like, well, you know, it should have lots of communal facilities. It should have lots of green space. It should have a roof garden. It should have spaces that that that, that you know encourage people to 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 interact with each other rather than obstruct it, which is the case in a lot of mass housing. Um, so there's just such a ridiculously long history of it that it's almost kind of difficult to answer the question in terms of like specific things to point to because pretty much every city I think has you know four or five examples of of what in a different context would be regarded as socialist housing and I'm, I've always been sort of struck by the lack of interest in that on the part of the left particularly the new left who I think tended to kind of see this as just something that was just in the air that somehow had just been kind of granted by capitalism would always be there and accordingly were often very scathing about it if they noticed it at all which they usually didn't um, so you know something like Park Hill and Sheffield before it was turned into a block of yuppie flats you know something like well one part was a block of yuppie flats three quarters of it is still derelict mm -hmm. um, you know something like um, Trellick Tower you know um, before, in the interwar years things like the kind of municipal housing schemes of 1930s London or Liverpool um, you know there's there's loads of this stuff but it's funny isn't it you, when you listen you, you read out that that Morris quote and there's a real emphasis on on those kind of communal spaces or mm -hmm. spaces in which people you know, who are living in the same building have some kind of shared social space including mm -hmm. you know shared kitchens which I think yep. you know it sounds to me now like a, a kind of impossible utopian dream to live in a building in which you shared kitchens and possibly mm -hmm. had some social interaction outside of the, the sort of tiny domestic unit which is also mm -hmm. you know almost invariably now the family unit or mm -hmm. you know temporary shared accommodation between people who are paying through the nose for however much you know whatever yep. so 
you know, it's, it, 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 are there examples, you know, of places where, where sort of communal spaces like that still function? Um, in Britain, <laughs> it's much more difficult to answer. Um, I could give you dozens of examples of it in, in, in Berlin or mm-hmm. Vienna or what have you. Um, but in Britain, we really do have to reckon with the fact that there has been a 40-year assault on this stuff that has torn it to pieces. Um, and a lot of what remains is is residual. And a lot of it was, a lot of the stuff that's endured is the stuff that was, you know, stacked single-family stuff. And within that stacked single-family stuff, you would get an abundance of sort of, um, of sort of, public and in-between space that you now wouldn't because obviously um, it tends not to be profitable. And a lot of the things that are happening now in housing are filling in those precise spaces. You know, the kind of the green spaces and trees in your average council estate are exactly mm. what A, developers and B, councils who you know want to actually build while not really being able to acquire land tend to want to build on those green spaces. So in terms of like communal infrastructure, we've not had as much of it to the same degree um, you know, one of the kind of in, in the 1930s in Leeds, Quarry Hill flats were intended to have the kind of communal facilities that were in the housing being built a, a few years before in Vienna um, under the kind of Austro-Marxist government there that, um, you know, would have incredibly kind of elaborate facilities. And in Leeds, most of them weren't built. Um, you know, Park Hill and Sheffield had more than your average housing state of those sorts of things. And it's interesting that since it became sort of gentrified, actually, those things have been almost entirely removed apart from um, an art gallery and offices that include the local offices of Uber. Um, <laughs> so um, you actually, at that point, then you have to go to the hippies and the anarchists. Mm. And they have managed to maintain this sort of stuff, I think, because of the fact that that stuff is very, that, that, that the thing, sort of thing they do is very elective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's groups of people that, that get together and, and want to do this specifically. So something like the kind of recent-ish Lilac co-housing scheme in Leeds has the sort of communal spaces and communal sort of cafes and dining spaces and allotments planned as part of it from the start. And I think any kind of, council housing that would be built in future a chance would be a fine thing um, ought to have that sort of thing at the heart of it for it in order not for it to be a sort of you know collection of units mm-hmm. well I mean I, th- I think it was striking as thinking about this before the show that you know the you know the place where I look for that stuff to happen in London it, you know recently ish it's actually not that recent now um, is it, something like the Railton Road squats in Brixton mm-hmm. where you know the, these were kind of very normal sort of terrace houses, but you know, they tore down the fences in the garden, so they communalised the garden, and, and various of the houses were, were like pretty communal spaces, stuff like that. But the, these are like deliberate attempts to change the architecture of places mm, mm, in which mm, people mm. are living, and it's done, you know, as you know, partly in a minoritarian fashion, yeah, <laughs> which I think you know is, is inevitable. But also, like it, it's really striking because you know, when you know, even I think you know, when I was a teenager, I thought of these places as. You know, they, most of them had gone by that point, but there were still the kind of uh, embers of it around. Mm. It just doesn't seem to me that it's possible, certainly within the capital city, for for those kind of approaches to living differently to exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether that you know therefore necessarily constrains the kind of architecture that's imaginable anyway. So mm. you know whether whether that's going to emerge from you know the, the kind of people attempting to live differently and then there being a kind of response to that for, from from. Uh, people building differently it just it seems to yeah. be unlikely now but i mean but i mean the the the, the, the kind of um use Anna Minton's phrase the sort of super prime housing crisis of london means that anything remotely kind of alternative to that is impossible doing ordinary social democratic mass housing is impossible in london you know squatting is now near to impossible mm. in london um, you know, just having a sort of reasonably <laughs> affordable um, flat to rent is is, 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 is is near impossible in London. And it's taken a very, very long time for local governments and the Labour Party to, to, to re- locally to, to realise this. Um, and they tended to have concentrated on sort of, well, moving back into political economy here, but bear with me, um, you know, one of the kind of the, the kind of great kind of best practice now that was written about by people as if it was bloody Red Vienna is um, the Colville Estate in Hackney, mm. um, where 
I think this first point is true, and a lot of people deny this first point. And I would make I would make it quite emphatically: if like the people in that area, we you know their, their council estate was redeveloped with their consent over time, slowly, and they mostly got to move into new flats that were better built, better insulated, and and so forth. So it was ah wonderful council housing triumph. Um, then at the corner of the site, still on land owned by the council, you have two high rise blocks, which um, sell for at least a million for for a flat. Um, and of course, this then cross-subsidizes mm. this wonderful new housing, which, like a lot of new London architecture, in terms of stylistically, it's probably a lot better than a lot of the stuff that was built under the Blair years. They tend to, uh, there's, there's a certain amount of regulation of this stuff by the mayor's office in the last 10 years, and it has actually got gotten better. Um, but, you know, the whole thing is subsidized by charging a million pounds for a, block of fl- for, for a flat in Hackney, which then means that every landlord in Hackney knows that you can now charge a million pounds for a block of flats and for, for, for a flat in Hackney. So then more people are in the housing insecurity, more people are on the waiting list. And none of those people are getting flats in the estate because, of course, what's actually happened is that already existing council tenants have moved into new council flats. And that is where the left is in housing in London at the moment. It's pathetic. Yeah. I mean, it's, you mentioned Labour there, and obviously the, one of your early books is is quite a brutal tour <laughs> of um, of some of the uh, so, some of the, the experiments in architecture conducted uh, during the the Blair years and during yeah. the period of yeah. um, sort of third way modernisation, yeah. I suppose you can call it of, mm, a, of, mm, of a kind. Mm. Um, yeah, it it you know you do tour some really striking abominations in that book, and, and it's quite uh, uh, you know many of which were, were trumpeted with a kind of great fanfare about what mm-hmm. they would do, both in terms of the local area, but in terms of you know in terms of that they would be places yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. to live. Uh, can you just give us some examples of? I that, mean, I think I need to give a bit of context before specific examples. So my example would be at the Millennium Village, <laughs> um, but the. Um, uh, it was a sort of one of the things where you could sort of understand new Labour's thought processes. Like there's certain aspects where I think they were just scumbags from the start, and this is not one of them. Um, they were extremely aware of the fact that in the 1980s and 1990s, British cities fell extremely far behind. Um, they modelled themselves, if they modelled themselves in anything in particular on the US, they became extremely sort of suburban, car-centred. You know, the kind of classic 80s landscape of the kind of out-of-town retail park and the kind of Barrett estate was the, the limit of, of people's ambitions and was also the limit of the left's ambitions. Um, what, you know, very kind of radical Marxist councils like Liverpool and Lambeth were doing at that point was basically identical to what Norman Tevitt was inflicting on Essex. Um, so they were, and the New Labour on the other hand were going to Rotterdam, they were going to Barcelona, they were going to Stockholm, they were going to Berlin, and they were going like they, these people managed to live in cities and enjoy cities. You know, they 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 like have nice parks and nice squares, and you know their riversides are actually pleasant to walk on, and there aren't spikes and fences everywhere, and they are obsessed with privacy on their own little postage stamp sized front garden you know um, they managed to walk or take public transport rather than go around and you know in traffic jams at all times um, and they then tried to build that um, and that missed I think two things one of which was the um, those were extremely tightly regulated countries of extremely tightly regulated systems of housing and architecture I was talking to Emma Dent Code about this um, recently, and she, you know, she was pointing out her specialty before she became an MP was in the history of Spanish architecture. You know, in Spain, all responsibility is with the architect. If you, um, if anything goes wrong in that, in terms of its it, it, its construction or its design, you know, um, the architect will be fined or go to jail. Um, we have and kind of inherited from Thatcherism and from John Major and was expanded massively under New Labour, a system of contracting so complicated that, as we can see at the Grenfell Inquiry, no one can actually prove who is responsible mm. for anything. And that's the system that then we're supposed to build what, you know, the, the, the transformation of Manchester into Barcelona, essentially, which is what they tried to embark upon, um, was done via the same methods that have produced Lakeside and Blue Water. Um, and surprise, surprise, it wasn't very nice. Um, but it sort of began, and you can almost sort of trace them when you go to a kind of big new Labour estate. Um, you can trace the process. So if you go to the Millennium Village in Greenwich, um, built on sort of detoxified land um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, you can see the first phase of it has 
you know, a nice, nice community buildings, um, a nature reserve, you know, really quite decent public spaces. You know, it's not like it's, it's not Karl Marx off, but, you know, it's 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 decent enough. And then everything that comes after that is units, units, units. And they frequently follow the same design, which was very based very much on a kind of obsession of cladding. Um, you know, at that point, it was all sort of slatted wood cladding and kind of like this material that I got obsessed with for a while called Tresper, which you can kind of make look like wood if you want, or kind of make just look like a generic kind of generic shiny material in various different colours. I claim that various things are made of Tresper that weren't because I just like the word. Um, and and it, and more the more recent examples in the cladding of of brick, a sort of you mm. know quarter inch of brick, which is sort of stuck onto everything now. Um, so you could almost sort of see this kind of watering down from 1999 to the most recent examples. And it had already happened by 2010 when I wrote that book. You know, you could it had already been sort of eviscerated substantially. And that was the state of the art. That was as best as they got. Mm -hmm. The rest was just a lot of kind of like, you know, you had new yardsticks that would come in. You know, you'd be encouraged to build on brownfield rather than greenfield. You'd be encouraged to build flats rather than houses. And after that, you could basically do what you wanted. Mm -hmm. You could have you have to have an active frontage at the bottom of your building, which then usually became an estate agent or a prep. Um, and within that, I think there was a, um, you know, uh, it sort of just became another way of sort of taking places that had um, become economically inactive, let's say, and making them very, very profitable again. And that's that that that's what it all turned into. I mean, that's that. There is a bit of a, a question here, I think, about um, you know the 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 recognised because the, so there's a couple of things going on here. One one is like that specific question of London, right? Which is obviously it, it's different from Manchester or Leeds or Sheffield or mm. wherever. It's not the same kind of place. It's this very mm. weird. You know, on the one hand, like you know, so the question is of, of kind of. You know, public-private space and, uh, you know, the, where people actually <laughs> are able to live in mm -hmm. London is warped by the fact that it's this kind of huge, bizarre, like, capital-filled capital, -filled capital mm -hmm. right? And so it's an international city in that sense as well as being a British city. And so, and so, so it seems to me like there's a particular problem in London. I, I wonder... the Because it, it, it seems to me from... From reading that that book, which you know, is, is now ten years old, <laughs> but it seems to me that there is a logic there that that has been that was applied pretty much wherever mm. this stuff mm. went on. But in London, in particular, there, you know that that you know you have, and, and it's struck me when so Sadiq Khan's favourite catchphrase is "London is open." Yep. So yep. like, well, okay, cool, nice. I mean, it's sure it's open in a kind of. You know, all, all the things that we shouldn't, mm, you know, mm, object mm. to, such as you know, multiculturalism and you know, you know, tolerance and mm, other mm, good, mm. happy, clappy, kumbaya things. It's also open in that kind of neoliberal sense, right? That there's this yep. kind of big sluicegate yep. for capital yep. kind of flowing through it, and then it's a city of ten million people, which you know, all, all of whom actually have to live somewhere. Yep. Which I, you know, it doesn't seem to me that that do, do, do you have a sense then? Because so you mentioned the kind of the mayor's office has been doing this kind of regulation and, and has been better at regulating. So, for instance, I'm thinking you know, in Southwark at the moment, there's this um, you know big development space to happen that Southwark Council in a sort of, I have to say, rare feat of actually applying their own planning standards to mm, these, these mm, big redevelopments mm, said, mm. no, actually, you can't do this because the social housing aspect or the, the, the social rent equivalent aspect yep. isn't, isn't yep. great. Um, and then Khan calls it in and goes, well, actually, no, yep. it's, it, it's fine. So, so, so that kind of, you know, it, it seems like, like you know, a couple of questions here because I'm mm, rambling a bit. Mm. Um, one is, you know, the, the difference between the way in which this stuff works out in terms of the places people actually live and the kind of housing that they have. Yep. It, you know, how different is it between London and and the whole range of other cities in Britain, uh, and then that there's question three of like whether two. yeah, <laughs> and then that, there's just that question of like you know does anyone in local government actually care? Um, yes, they do. And um, one of the things that Southwark, I, I, I think I'll get excommunicated from part of the left for for this, but <laughs> you know. Um, Southwark has dozens of sites on which it's building council housing, which, you know, on the basis of the designs, many of which I've seen, will be pretty decent. 
they will have to, at the current rate they're doing it, it will take them decades to make up for what they've demolished. Um, but and that's very much a kind of question that I think any sort of reformist administration, you know, if it won the election in December, would have would have faced, which is it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time to, re- to reverse that damage, and particularly to reverse that damage while pretending to be friends with the people that are responsible for the damage <laughs> and being in the same party with the people responsible for the damage. Um, but anyway... Um, London, I think, does does face a somewhat different issue. Lots of councils are building now, and I think uh, that that tends to be concentrated in places that are either London boroughs or places that are like London in the way their economies work: Bristol, Norwich. Um, you know, the, the the blocks that won an award and and that won the Sterling mm. Prize last year in Norwich, being case in point. Salford are now starting to do it, and I think Manchester is quite exceptional in the north. And so far as I think the sort of central Manchester and central Salford. Um, which we have to pretend are different things um, for reasons that are kind of beyond me, um, you know, uh, have a quite similar economy to to London of sort of finance and real estate. But in London, it's so extreme that they're really, I really don't think it can be dealt with without first admitting how much it's our fault and then taking quite drastic solutions to it, which I think could only really come from, from the top, from the GLA rather than from the boroughs, and would, would have to be in something like the London plan, which mm-hmm. is the kind of legally binding plan that the mayor's office produces every few years. So, you know, Livingston used to boast when he was mayor that, you know, because like a lot of new left people, never was never a great fan of council housing in the first place. Um, but he was kind of like, you know, at first was like, I'm going to have to ask Gordon Brown for, for money to build council housing because, you know, he, he could see what was going to happen mm-hmm. because Livingston's whole thing was a kind of a sort of enlightened third way, I think, a kind of version of the third way without all the kind of punitive idiocy and thuggery that Blair brought to it, um, which was, you know, we are going to let the city do what it does. We're going to cream off a load of money for it and, and maintain London as a social democratic city. Um, when it was clear that that, you know, that the how that there was a housing crisis being being caused by this, he had his famous percentage deals. Thirty five percent of everything will be affordable, which he never defined. Mm. It came to be defined by David Cameron as eighty percent of market rent. Um, but you know that, that he had this idea that that um, he literally said at one point, "I don't need to go and ask the Treasury because I can make developers build this, build the social housing." And that's still basically the GLA's policy, as far as I can tell. It has a little bit more emphasis on council housing now, but that's still basically what the plan is. And it has failed utterly. It's a disastrous policy that has been proven to fail, and most recently was proven to fail by the GLA's own report by Tom Copley, who is now the deputy mayor for housing. Um, and I have some sort of like tentative hope that the fact that like literally the person that wrote the report proving that this failed might might now have an influence at City Hall, but you know we'll we'll see. Um, and I think there's there's a phrase about London housing and London property, which I've stolen from my friend and comrade Archibald Woodrow, which is that it is a resource curse. And, you know, that, that, that councils Haringey being a, a great example at the moment are very much unwilling to forfeit the fact that they can sell land and they can speculate mm-hmm. on their housing, even if they won't do it on the same kind of obscene scale as the HDV, they will still do it because they know it's a license to print money and they'll be able to fund their continued mm-hmm. activities as a sort of dented shield, as it were. Um, but then doing that then removes the bloody yeah, shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's there has to be a kind of like leaving it in the ground response right. to that resource, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, it, does, it does seem to me like that the, the ultimately the only solution here, and it's very depressing to say this after an election, is that you have to have someone passing laws in central government that makes this stuff much, much, much harder to do. Yeah, you um, do. And uh, obviously for, for all of my you know, fondness for, for kind of bottom-up movements and mm, for, mm. for, you know, I'm, I'm also very fond of you know, the history of municipalism, which obviously tied into this stuff. It does seem to me that, like, certainly, to, absent that kind of mm, central, mm, in so mm, centralised mm. a state as Britain, like, absent that, it's going to be very, very mm. hard to change that. I mentioned municipalism there. I, I want to move on to talk about culture shortly, but I just think it's worth saying, as we've been talking a bit about London, you mentioned Ken Livingston there. Mm. There is, I think, an enduring fondness on the left for, um, you know, the the history of the GLC in particular. Tend yes. to point to something like. Coin Street, which is a relatively successful story of regeneration in central London mm. as being, you know, this is the thing that mm. that, that councils could do. You sound sceptical. Yeah, I mean, like, 
Great things were done by the new left in housing in the 1980s. Coin Street being one of them, the um, self-filled stuff in Honor Oak uh, that Lewisham Council did under Nicholas Taylor by uh, Walter Siegel. This is, these are all really interesting things. But they were able to happen because there was a surplus of council housing. The problem with council housing being hard to let. Um, you still talk to a lot of older councillors and they talk about hard to let estates. Like, are you on Mars? <laughs> like... Um, you know, like most of the hard-to-let estates, you know, are increasingly like um, owned by private landlords in a lot of cases. Um, so, you know, the, the the new left was given a particular bequest in housing, um, which was basically there are exceptions to this, which are important, but basically the housing question had been solved, um, and then that meant you could do other stuff. You could go, well, we've got this little bit of land here that we own. Why don't we let, let a load of, like, you know, activists, like, build their own housing here? And we'll, 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 we're happy to manage it. It's our land and blah, blah, blah. And Coin Street, similarly, like, you know, the GLC managed to um, buy a, a big site from a developer who was going to kind of um, build a kind of proto-canary wharf on top of it. And it became a housing co-op. Um, wonderful. Um, if you're in the club, both of those two things are great. Mm. The point with something like municipal housing was that it was for everyone, not for people that were in the club. And I find talking to kind of libertarian socialists about housing very frustrating because they seem very resistant to grasping, I think, this, this obvious fact. Um, and that does mean that solutions to a, a small scale are very, very difficult, which is one reason why I kind of think the GLA is an interesting, an interesting thing in that regard is because there is a measure of devolution to London. The mayor can call stuff in and say, no, you can't develop this mm. here. And they do have a plan that's legally binding. Um, so I think that those two instruments could be used a lot more aggressively than they are. Um, this would probably lead to the GLA getting loads of trouble mm -hmm. and they'd be taken to court a lot. Um, but, you know, the it's, it's either that or preside over, you know, London kind of reaching the level of you know, a sort of um, the cities of the global south, essentially, of it, of it having, um, which increasingly does, you know, mass, mass informal housing, mm. of it having, you know, gated communities on a, gigantic, on a gigantic scale, of it having a, an upper middle class that commutes by helicopter. You know, that's that's our current likely future in London in a city which is run overwhelmingly by the Labour Party. Mm. So I think there has to be a much greater commitment to admitting we can't run this properly. So we have to be confrontational. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like uh, something Sadiq Khan could take up in his re-election <laughs> campaign. He finds a spine somewhere. Well, I mean, the, but the thing with that is, that just just briefly before we move on to the other thing, <clears throat> is that he has already claimed something which is completely beyond his beyond his abilities, which is London will decarbonise by twenty thirty. It's like, yeah, and you're going to do that, and you're going to build a silver town tunnel. <laughs> but it does show, and I think they that you know that 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 they are able to sometimes say we are going to take this incredibly radical move. And, you know, as when, the, as when the congestion charge was brought in, um, they have sometimes managed to do this and get away with mm -hmm. it. Um, so if they're willing to do this, I don't think they have any conception of just quite how radical a change in London would be necessary for it to be zero carbon in 10 years. <laughs> um, it would be, we're talking about a gigantic scale of things. Mm -hmm. And no greater than saying, you know, we're not going to let developers bugger around with London anymore. I don't think it would actually cause anything more more difficult no no um right yes i wanted to move on because so um obviously your your the the other hat that you wear <laughs> is as uh culture editor at tribune magazine which obviously everyone listening should go and take out a subscription to because it's very good and very much worth absolutely reading um, it's pretty it is and it is it is attractive as well um it, i i and and I was sort of delighted when you sort of took that role because, you know, I I get sort of perpetually frustrated about the relationship between politics and culture hmm. in the British left in particular. I mean, you know, and I think it is particularly bad in Britain. I think the the UK left is bad at culture. It doesn't really know how to think about it. Mm. Just tell me a bit about the kind of approach you're trying to take to it at Tribune. I mean, it's really interesting that you say that the UK left is particularly bad at it because my approach to it comes almost entirely from the way a sort of section of the British left approached it 
in the 1970s and 1980s and to a degree into the 1990s. Um, you know, the sort of particular interest in, 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 in pop culture, in mass culture, in kind of taking thing, culture on its own terms to a degree rather than sort of searching for the political meaning in it. You know, why does this blockbuster or this pop record, you know, what what secret meaning does that have? And that's not saying that, that blockbusters or pop records are not should not be talked about, which they absolutely should. It's that, you know, them having the correct line is not mm. an interesting political way of looking at either. Um, so it really kind of came out of came out of that because I think I sort of became interested in in culture at the tail end of that in the mid 1990s when it was sort of dying really but that you're sort of formed by something nonetheless yeah. and I th- most of the writers that I have at, at, at Tribune are people like Rian Jones who are roughly my age mm-hmm. who also had that experience of like things that now are kind of quite easily mocked like the Manic Street Preachers or what have you and looking at the way that like culture worked for something like that mm-hmm. for like you know um for people in a depressed mining town in South Wales and their interpretation of sort of mass culture and pop culture as a sort of, uh, as, as a means of political expression. Yeah. Um, so that partly came from that and it partly came from a sort of interest that I had as a, as a failed academic in the interwar communist culture um, of things like kind of Willy Munzenberg and his sort of media empire in the Weimar Republic um, and the kind of social democratic culture of things like kind of Austro-Marxism, um, municipal socialism in various countries, including Britain. And you can also trace most of this back to the arts and crafts. So there's a kind of good British route for it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the really interesting thing about that sort of 20s avant-garde culture is it is people trying to kind of take kind of, you know, Morris or Ruskin or Walter Crane or Wilde or what have you and take it in sort of interesting kind of high-tech places that the British absolutely didn't want to take it <laughs> and were bitterly resistant to um, until after the war. So those are the kind of sources for it, really, is on the one hand, this kind of like the culture of the enemy is interesting mm-hmm. and we should to be sophisticated about it and be like, you know, we once had an enormous cultural infrastructure of our own right, and we I mean, need I, to I, kind of try and reconstitute yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose when I say the UK left is bad at culture, it, it is a very much a contemporary sense, right? Because yeah. I think that that's yeah. definitely there. I mean, that's one of the reasons why so much of the people I have, which I feel bad about, and I'm constantly trying to find people younger. And young people, pitch to me, please. I'm easily found on Twitter, <laughs> like, honestly. Um, but most of the people I have writing about cultural artefacts film tv music architecture art are people in their mid-30s um and i find that tv is a partial exception um but i find that there's much less interest in that stuff from the youth and that mm. may be a good or a bad thing but it just makes it difficult as a commissioning editor because, you know <laughs> like work out what what to get a 25 year old to write right about. well i mean because the, there is this sort of and i suppose it's it, you know it's partly a consequence of of living in a moment in which like there is actually a kind of active and which has been to some extent all consuming um, political movement right so mm, so mm, everyone's mm, become mm, very mm, very focused mm, on that mm. question of sort of political activity but it's you know it, it, one of the consequences of that i think sometimes is that you, you know, as you say, that the, there is this kind of, you know, hunt out, you know, the politics of Object yeah, yeah, X yeah, yeah. and yeah, weigh it yeah, against, yeah. you know, the, the, the correct line. Which is, uh, I mean, I wrote a piece for, 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 for Jacobin, which was partly, um, partly sort of aimed as a sort of comradely critique of you lot. Um, and the specific fact that, like, I was sort of comparing kind of the, the sort of left media infrastructure as it exists now with the way that the kind of 1968 generation was sort of brought into things like the BBC and ITV mm. um, in, you know, over the course of the 70s and 80s. Um, and you could see that kind of paranoid people of a certain age were looking at people like you and Aaron and Ash and going like, ah, these are the people that in future are going to be, you know, um, on massively paid salaries at the, as, you know, commissioning at the BBC or whatever. And it was clear that, like, this is not going to happen. <laughs> Those things just are not there anymore. What you're going to become is pundits. Yeah. And so you'll be in there, you know, getting to talk about politics on the politics show. Um, and someone like Stuart Hall being a, being a great example, Stuart Hall got to present and write it ain't half racist mum mm. and, spe- and the spectre of Marxism. He got to write these things um, and present them on, 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 on Channel 4. Um, 
And the last 10 years, I've not seen anyone do this. Mm, mm, mm. It's just extraordinary that like you, none of you have been, sort of been allowed to kind of emerge out from punditry and to actually talk about politics in a way that isn't party politics, but yeah. it's about, you know, how it affects people's lives and their minds and their, you know, um, which was done abundantly in the 70s and 80s and at a time in which actually the left was probably more marginal in terms of punditry. Right. <laughs> well, it's quite striking, isn't it? Because they, yeah, and, and partly this is, you know, I think a consequence of, of you know, just in terms of, because you know, the stuff that's easy to do independently is stuff like this, which is, you know, yep. two people sit down, have a conversation about interesting things and that's the product. Yeah. You know, in terms of producing documentaries and series and you know that kind of cultural work it's a vast 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 you know uh, amount of effort mm, mm. and you know involves just more man hours in the sense that that it's not it cannot be one person's i mean i suppose you could put one person in front of a video camera and talk directly at it but no mm, one's going to watch mm, that mm. so when you're thinking about the kind of artifact that you create the kind of politics of, of you know formal politics right yep. politics of yep. form yep. um you know because but but i thought you know, it is quite striking. I wonder if it's just a consequence. I've been thinking about the BBC a lot recently. It's just kind of a consequence of the transformation of the BBC and, and, and things like that, institutions mm, mm. like that, in that they are incredibly involuted, much, yes. much, much more business-like, yes. very, very averse to risk-taking, yes. and so on and so on. So I think, you know, it's it's partly, you know, the, the way in which, you know, these sort of new media companies have, have grown up, but it's also... I just think partly you know, the way that, that those kind of shared institutions or the, the major public service institutions in Britain now just think about the kinds of stuff that they can put out. Um, I should say, on the other hand, like the BBC's documentary stuff is not bad. It's not great. But it's not bad. There's, there's a lot of going on a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but this this thing comes to that question, doesn't it? About that, quite you know, about the the formal quality of this kind of stuff, right? And that, and that's the thing. Like a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, and it, it's it's there's a huge risk in all of this and lapsing into nostalgia, which I probably do all the time. But something like Ways of Seeing, you know, something like 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 John Burgess series, Ways of Seeing. Um, it's not John Berger taking you through a journey of the history of Western art and trying to smuggle some Walter Benjamin in it. It's him taking, you know, um, Walter Benjamin and going like, how would Benjamin have made a TV program for the mm-hmm. BBC in 1973 and doing it? Um, and, you know, the, the, the form is as much a point as, as, as the argument. Um, but that's and that's the thing that's that that's so so difficult. Mm-mm. I mean, I had I, I had a brief little experience about this, which I think by now is I can probably talk about publicly, um, which was for a, a, a BBC Four project about twenty twelve. Um, we it was I think it was probably before the Olympic ceremony, but we were talking about it being like a history of sort of modernist Britain, and it was very influenced by Pandemonium by Humphrey mm-hmm. Jennings. Yeah, um, before yeah before be- before Danny Boyle um, used to at the Olympic ceremony, um, which is this kind of montage of kind of like little reports and sort of encounters of the industrialization of Britain in the early nineteenth century, and it. It would have involved quite a lot of montage, it would have involved quite a lot of found footage. It would probably have been cheap because of that, mm-hmm. um, but it wouldn't have involved me going on a journey. But anyway, we sort of, I, I was talking with a man who called, um, called John T. Claypole, and I don't think it was John T. Claypole's fault. Um, but, you know, it was sort of Speaking working on it for, working on it for a while, and then. Um, I think it's not Jolion. Um, and <laughs> uh, talking, talk, talking about it for a while, and then um, I never heard back. And then I was just, I was at an Edwin Collins gig around the corner from the BBC at the, at the Social in Malibu. And someone came up and was like, oh, I worked on your series. And I was like, what series? What are you talking about? And he's like, oh, that pandemonium thing. And I was like, oh, 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 you did, did you? And he was like, and she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, what, what happened to it then? And she said, went all the way to the top at BBC Four. And then we were just told, no, he's a trot. <laughs> well, I mean, that's so striking. That's, I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, in terms of those those kind of powerful commissioning roles, um, you know, you get the same thing in BBC Radio. James Purnell is the BBC controller of radio. <laughs> like, the, I mean, this is a, you know the idea. I remember that, having my benefits literally slashed under James Purnell. Good so guy, that was, uh... good guy. But I mean, I suppose like so we're talking about the major institutions here, and I suppose the other side of this stuff is that the feeling I have increasingly, and maybe it's just because you know I'm in my thirties now, so. Maybe I just don't see it anymore. But mm. it doesn't seem to me that it's out there. Is is any sense of a counterculture uh, of any kind of sustainable or tangible kind? Well, there, I mean, I mean, there, there is, but it's not. 
culture in a way. There's a kind of obvious subculture. You go to a TWT thing, and those are the people, mm-hmm. not necessarily the kind of the kind of older folk who are from a sort of different subculture and the people that would have been involved in Benism or Millicent or whatever. But the kind of the the under thirties at TWT thing, there was subculture in the making, mm-hmm. but they don't make any culture, right? Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's. That's really. Yeah. That is intriguing. I suppose I'm. I'm too old to really see it. But, <laughs> but you, you can spot them. No. I think you're right. You I can spot right. them. Around, you know, right. when you go around like Manchester or Liverpool or Bristol or London, you can see those people. Mm. You can often see people and know these are people that are probably in Momentum or in Labour Party. Right. Yes. Yeah. These yeah, people that probably true. have that's like true. really dank Twitter accounts. <laughs> but like, I suppose that you know, I, I guess you know, the question you know is partly, I suppose, where where are those cultures be made in, t- in terms of creative output so there are social kind of e- e- equivalents there's kind of obviously a kind of social aspect to this stuff but like I, I, you know I, I don't know whether the interest is there or whether the you know people feel that the space is ever more increasingly constrained to mm, produce that mm. stuff like, I, mean, I don't know if it's a digital thing that there isn't the kind of like weird experimental enclaves that there used to be to, mm, to mm, kind of attempt mm, to create that mm. stuff um, or whether the, the 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 interest in creating cultures has sort of simply been drummed out as a consequence. <laughs> I think it's been drummed out, and I, and I find it strange because of the fact that obviously we're dealing with people that are incredibly educated, um, probably far more than that seventies generation mm. was, um, and will have a command of of theory and history that's very sophisticated. And a lot more sophisticated in terms of you know uh, conception of gender or racial politics than than than, than that seventies generation did by a long chalk, um, but I guess it's almost just a question of of artifacts in a way you know that, that that they don't that it doesn't translate into um, you know a, a, a novel or a film or a. Um, or a piece of music in the way that it once would. And maybe that's because they're kind of living their culture in the way that they act. But I don't think they are because they don't have the time. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, they, you know, and, and when I do see the little objects that kind of turn up and kind of seem to be part of the political moment we're living in, they come from people that are my age or older. Mm-hmm. I remember going to see Sorry to Bother You at the Peckinplex um, when it came out. And it was absolutely full of those people, yeah, the people I'm yeah. talking about, you know, the TWT people. They were all in there. And I went to see it and thought, this is incredible. You know, someone's finally done, you know, something on the level of like, you know, the way that George Romero, um, you know, dramatized to put the kind of politics of the 70s and the 80s. It was, oh, thank God someone's finally done this. And then kind of went out and there was a group of people and you walk around Peckham and there's hammer and sickles like scrawled all over the walls. And I thought, what a time to be alive. <laughs> and I remember that like Boots Riley's about 50. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, it, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, I suppose, the, the, you know, I also have this kind of like, you know, and it's like it distinguishes me, I guess, from a lot of conversation around culture in Britain is that I have this kind of like very resistant and slightly Adornian uh, approach to this stuff, mm, which is mm, like mm. You know, kind of grousing about the culture industry. But I do think it is important is to, is to recognize that there are, you know, that, you know, that, that there are problems with, with attempting to make mass media in, in that yes, way. Yes. And that, that you know, that the, the kind of simple, if you know, if you were to replace the bad message with the good message, that that cultural form yep. also wouldn't Absolutely. have its limitations and its problems. Absolutely. It might be interesting formally to kind of, you know, attempt to, to to sort of push push that stuff beyond that. I mean, where would you see, like, if you, you know, in terms of like, I guess, a kind of critical toolbox for approaching kind of contemporary culture? What what, what sort of resources would you? Need? So you mentioned sort of Stuart Hall there a bit. Um, mm. You know, obviously, I I you know. I, I'm not an Adornian in that I don't think like everything is proto-fascist. Yeah. The, the radio is fascist. Yeah. You know, this is great. The jazz is fascist. Um, but 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 what sort of stuff should people be drawing on to think about contemporary culture? <sighs> I, I, that's a really difficult question to answer, to be honest, because I, I don't really think there is a, a great deal of particularly sophisticated analysis of contemporary culture. Um, I mean, there are odd bits and bobs. You know, I always enjoy reading, like, you know... Um, sort of, you know, tenured academics in New York writing about the internet and M plus one. That's not intended as a burn. I always really yeah, enjoy yeah. it. And I think they've got a real handle on that. The, 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 um, Dana Tortorici's thing on Instagram and the last issue, wonderful piece of writing. So there are things like this occasionally. Um, but in terms of, sort of historical, like the, 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 the thing I always kind of got fixated on 
as I sort of already outlined, I suppose, is broadly speaking, the 20s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. Also 20s to 30s, 70s to 80s, let's say. And so that sort of 20s debate between, which I think, you know, all, all, all good Marxists now know pretty well, between um, Brecht and Bloch and Benjamin on the one hand, and, you know, George Lukács and the kind of, with the sort of party behind him on the other, about modernism and, the, and expressionism in the, in the 20s and 30s. And about that kind of debate over over form and politics, which I think is very undecided. You know, I think a lot of the history of of cinema suggests that you know um, you can have enormously experimental forms that make no difference to anything in the wider world. Um, you know, you can have um, smuggle in all kinds of messages, which you know, as, as Mark Fisher said, you know, do your anti-capitalism for you. You know that that that. So I don't think Lukash was completely wrong on this. It's just that he seems to think that Walter Scott was the solution. Um, but the um, and then there's that kind of 70s and 80s debate, which comes up, I think, as a sort of response to 68. And there's a response also very much to punk and that kind of interest in in what punk meant mm. politically and what the kind of permutations of it meant um, politically. And there I would probably find it much more interesting to kind of go and look at, uh, at writers who I think understood music and mass culture um, like John Savage or like Paul Gilroy mm-hmm. than people who were of an older generation who didn't, you know, who didn't go to like Shabin's in 1977, <laughs> um, but, you know, had gone to jazz clubs in 1954. So Stuart Hall. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, obviously Stuart Hall's an immense resource on culture and politics, but I think his understanding of like 80s pop culture was um, extremely myopic. Mm-hmm. Um, usually seen as a kind of positivity, you know, it's a live aid, mm-hmm. you know, kind of big festivals, fun, fun, fun. And it's like looking at 80s pop culture as if it's a sort of solve to like the sectarian viciousness of the left at that time. And it's like, if you wanted sectarian viciousness, 80s pop culture and its sects and its vindictiveness and its judgmental and its, you know, how, how judgmental it was is actually mm-hmm. the place to go. And I, I think that older generation didn't get it. And that's one reason why that kind of sort of music press type writers mm. often did is because they kind of, you know, were, were born into it, as it were. But those, are, those are both cultural moments where there's also kind of sort of significant political and technological shifts, obviously, yep. in terms of cinema, in terms yep. of kind of, you know, the music industry. You know, obviously, the digital moment is the, the contemporary moment. And just wonder in the, the ways in which that kind of affects the, the writing on culture and whether it just approaches this kind of... You know, the, the same sort of like undifferentiated infinite scroll, which mm, I think is like, mm, you know, it's, it's a major difficult political question uh, and political cultural question. And I, I you know, I, I, I don't know whether I'm, I'm actually too old to see yeah. the, the kind of cultural form that's emerging. I think I'm too old. And I think the fact that when I listen to the podcast made by people that are 15 years younger than me, I don't understand them and I don't understand the humour is a great sign that actually maybe there is something mm. now. Um, you know, you, that was always the thing with, with pop culture, right? Is that by the time you're pushing 40, I'm 38, you know, you shouldn't, you, you, you shouldn't be able to get it anymore. And maybe the fact that I listen to Trash Future and I'm just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> um, is, is a sign that, you know, it's, it's the new thing. I don't know. I'm purely, I'm totally speculating. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I, I do think it's, a, well, maybe this is a point for, for listeners to, to, to point us to exactly where, the new political culture uh, interface mm, is mm. and where it's going on and what what I should read to understand it. Um, you know, sometimes I do read things that are written, you know, in the 21st century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> I think that is probably a good place to hear. We didn't come on to talk about the Labour Party leadership, which I think is for the probably best. an immense relief for yeah. both our listeners and for both of us. Although I think um, I position think was made clear. Yes, I think that, I think that position became abundantly clear. Um, Owen, of course, is editor of uh, culture editor of Tribune magazine, and I do recommend uh, all of our listeners pop over and check that out. Uh, obviously, as I said at the top of the show, uh, there is some serious and difficult and very important stuff going on in India at the moment, and really do uh, take time to look into what's going on there. Check my Twitter feed; I've retweeted some stuff today. But really, go and make some noise about that to your MPs as well. It is hugely important. It's only going to get quite a lot worse this has been navara fm on resonance 104.4 fm i have been james butler i will continue to be james butler and i will be back at the same time in the same place next week goodbye this podcast is brought to you by navara media 
You can find more podcasts as well as video interviews and articles at our website, novaramedia.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Novara Media. We're not funded by advertisers or wealthy backers, but rely on our subscribers. We ask for just one hour of your wage a month to keep us going. You can sign up at support.novaramedia.com and give us just one hour of your wage a month so we can keep working around the clock. That's support.novaramedia.com. <laughs>